fingers crossed Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows the good guys lost Welcome to the Lifeboat Hour, Sunday, December 20, 2015. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. As this show comes to you once again, offering not only a lifeboat for navigating perfect storms of personal and planetary madness, but also offering a bit of light in very dark times. And in fact, that's the title of the show tonight, A Light in Dark Times. We have no guests tonight because I decided to use this time to speak very personally with you about where we are at this point in the history of our species and hopefully offer some perspectives and some illumination to help make the darkness a bit less overwhelming. I want to talk with you very seriously tonight because this planet is in deep, deep trouble. And I need not recite a litany of horrors that are taking place on Earth right now because Lifeboat Hour listeners already know. Nor do I need to recite a litany of things you should be doing in the external world because you're probably already doing them. What I really want to focus on tonight is what we all must be doing in the inner world if the demise that we are facing is going to mean anything at all to us as individuals and as communities. Do we want to just be passing time on this planet until the end, or will we allow this unprecedented crisis to be our emotional and spiritual advisor? Monday, December 21st is winter solstice here in the Northern Hemisphere. Well, what does that exactly mean? According to the National Geographic website, which says, quote, in the Northern Hemisphere, the winter solstice always occurs, occurs on or about December 21st and marks the beginning of the winter season. As many people notice, it's the shortest day of the year, featuring the least amount of daylight between sunrise and sunset. In the Southern Hemisphere, this is the time of the summer solstice and the longest day of the year. From now on, as the northern days grow longer, so do the southern days get shorter. The term solstice means sun stands still. On the year's two solstices, winter and summer, the sun appears to halt in its incremental journey across the sky and change a little in position during this time. Of course, contrary to appearances from Earth, the sun's changing position, so-called, throughout the year is actually caused by the rotation of the Earth on its tilted axis as it circles the sun each year. The solstice occurs twice a year around December 22nd and June 21st when the sun is farthest from the tilting planet's celestial equator. For half of each year, the North Pole is tilted toward the sun, and for half of the year, the South Pole enjoys that privilege. This phenomenon creates our changing seasons because the hemisphere facing the sun receives longer and more powerful exposure to sunlight. In the northern hemisphere, the winter solstice occurs in December when the tilting of the earth makes the sun appear to be furthest to the south and furthest away. In the southern hemisphere, both seasons and solstices are reversed. Unquote. That information is from the National Geographic website on the topic of solstice. Now, in ancient times, our first ancestors lived in a very intimate relationship with the earth and sky and the entire cosmos. Almost nothing that happened in nature or in terms of the movement of the stars escaped their notice. 
And as these ancient humans observed the skies, it seemed to them as if the sun began to die on or about June 21st as the days began growing shorter and the nights longer. And then from their perspective, it seemed as if the sun was reborn on December 21st as daylight increased and nighttime decreased. So it felt appropriate to them to create rituals for the times of so-called death and rebirth of the sun. For many thousands of years, our ancient ancestors celebrated these two watershed days of the year, June 21st and December 21st, as summer and winter solstice. And as the National Geographic article states, the word solstice actually means standing still, which is what the sun appears to be doing on the longest and shortest days of the year. Now, yet another reason why our ancient ancestors created solstice rituals is that for them, the Earth's journey around the sun in the course of 365 days and the continuous so-called death and rebirth of the sun symbolized the human journey from birth to death to rebirth. In fact, on many levels, this identification with the cosmos on the part of humans makes perfect sense, especially if one experiences oneself as intimately connected with the universe. Furthermore, during the time of winter solstice, humans seem to have a great need to focus on the light, or at least long to find some kind of light to guide them through the very dark time of winter. Curiously, this time of year is significant for the Jewish religion, which celebrates Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights in early December, and the Christian religion, which celebrates the birth of Jesus on December 25th. Human beings just simply long for the light in the midst of darkness. Now, in current time, as we wind down the year 2015 and enter 2016, we're passing through some of the darkest times in the history of our planet. Now, these times would be just as dark, even if right now we were in the midst of summer and the maximum daylight of the year. Because after all, really, does it, does it matter how much daylight you experience when you know you're probably in the midst of the sixth mass extinction? When the entire world seems consumed with endless war and suffering? When other species are going extinct at ghastly rates? When a handful of people control the wealth of nations? And when the most powerful nation on earth appears to be marinated in a bizarre melange of rage and racism intent on recreating the Third Reich of the 1930s in Germany? Does it matter how long the days or nights are in this context? No. It really does not matter, but when all of this is occurring in the darkest and coldest time of the year, it certainly feels more terrifying, more heartbreaking, and more stultifying than it already is. In these moments, we desperately need some light to inspire us, guide us, and warm us as we stumble through the chilling blackness of uncertainty. I have no answers, and I would not insult you by offering to comfort you. That would be disingenuous because I'm as heartbroken, as fearful, as stunned, and as flummoxed as you are. And so I invite you to join me tonight in a symbolic, invisible circle of reflection right now with none of us having answers, none of us wiser than the other, none of us privy to some magic potion that will help us endure. What I can tell you is who I want to be and what I want to do as I walk through these times for as long as I can or until my work here is ended. 
perhaps what I'm saying will resonate, and you'll find in what I'm saying some light that will illumine and inspire you as we navigate the darkness together. I'd like to read a blessing by my friend Michael Mead, actually a friend and mentor. He wrote this little piece in his book, Fate and Destiny, in 2011. It's called The Blessing of Dark Times. And he says, We live in radical times surrounded by tasks that seem impossible. It has become our collective fate to be alive in a time of great tragedies, to live in a period of overwhelming disasters, and to stand at the edge of sweeping changes. The river of life is flooding before us, and a tide of poisons affect the air we breathe and the waters we drink, and even tarnish the dreams of those who are young and as yet innocent. The snake-bitten condition has already spread throughout the collective body. However, it is in troubled times that it becomes most important to remember that the wonder of life places the medicine of the self near where the poison dwells. The gifts always lie near the wounds. The remedies are often made from poisonous substances, and love often appears where deep losses become acknowledged. Along the arc of healing the wounds and the poisons of life are created the exact opportunities for bringing out all the medicines and making things whole again. Well, I don't know about making the world whole again, but I've experienced that I can do a great deal in the direction of making myself whole again. And sometimes I can offer something that helps make someone else whole. For me, wholeness is much more about experiencing the wholeness of my deeper humanity than it is about appearing unscathed. The truth is, I cannot be unscathed, nor can you, because as Michael Mead says, we're all infected with the poisons of life. But next to the poison lies a bit of medicine. Perhaps we can find some together tonight. A great American poet who has been highly underrated, in my opinion, was William Stafford. His poems are deceptively simple and replete with deep wisdom. Here's one of my favorites entitled, The Way It Is, a title and a poem so appropriate for these times. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you're pursuing, and you have to explain about the thread. But it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop time's unfolding, but you don't ever let go of the thread. And so for me, the thread that runs through everyone and everything that I choose not to let go of is the mystery, the sacred self, my deeper humanity, something greater than the rational mind and human ego. And I've come to believe that I am sitting, standing, walking in these horrific times in order to discover on a deep bone marrow cellular level that I am not my ego or my mind, that at my core I am the mystery I am the sacred. 
Another favorite poem of mine that so profoundly conveys what I'm trying to say comes from the Spanish poet Juan Ramon Jimenez. It's very short, but very, very profound. It's called, I Am Not I. I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit, and whom at other times I forget. The one who remains silent while I talk. The one who forgives, sweet when I hate. The one who takes a walk when I am indoors. The one who will remain standing when I die. And so if this global crisis, with all of its ecological, geopolitical, economic, sociological, and apocalyptic ramifications has any purpose for me, it is that I discover that I am not I. That I become intimately connected with the I of the sacred, and that the other I, the I of my ego, diminishes so that all of me can experience what really matters on this planet and how I can serve the crisis and the living beings who are are as battered by it as I am. This means opening to the possibility that at our core we are something greater than the ego and being willing to explore a relationship with it. Now, you may protest that you're an atheist or an agnostic and reject any notion of the sacred, And on one level, I couldn't agree more because the God you don't believe in is the God I don't believe in. Yet, I cannot argue with my own repeated empirical experiences of the sacred which have nothing to do with organized religion or sects. For many people, the sacred at their core is discovered and felt through intimate contact with nature. And my experience is that that is probably the most palpable avenue of connection with the sacred that we have. An intimate relationship with nature certainly opens the door toward the diminishment of the ego and the recognition of something greater. Connection with nature is one way to begin the journey of ego reduction and the process of nurturing the sacred core within. Another avenue is through recognizing and feeling our grief. Occasionally someone makes the claim that grieving is a form of giving up and that it undermines activism. My experience is that nothing could be more inaccurate. In fact, I've found that grieving and activism need each other. If the fires of activism are not tempered with the waters of grief, the activist will burn out. And if the grieving person does not resist the culture of ecocide and unprecedented injustice, he or she simply becomes part of the problem. And speaking of becoming part of the problem, if we are not doing the work of diminishing the ego and developing the sacred self, no matter how fiercely we resist the cultural madness, we're consenting to perpetuate it. Because without a commitment to spiritual awakening, we can only repeat the patterns which have been ingrained in us by industrial civilization. It's really about moving from the operating system of the dualistic rational mind and human ego to the operating system of the non-dual sacred self at our core. 
And it's really important to understand that the light available to us in dark times doesn't just fall into our laps because we're breathing air. To experience the fullness of this light, some work, some commitment is required. We're being asked to go on a journey. Much of the work in that journey is about working with the feelings that come up in the wake of climate catastrophe and the collapse of industrial civilization. Are we going to utilize the fear, anger, grief, and despair that these realities evoke? Or are we going to avoid them by either staying in denial or staying stoned? Of course, it's everyone's right to stay in denial or stay chemically oblivious, but it's also everyone's choice to use the so-called dark emotions as teachers. I believe that, in fact, this is our obligation. I believe that the Earth and the Earth community are asking for nothing less than this from us right now. If you have not begun this journey and would like to explore the work of some non-dual wisdom teachers who are well aware of our planetary predicament, I can suggest three. One is Eckhart Tolle, whose book, The Power of Now, is an excellent starting point. Some people resonate with the work of Adyashante, spelled A-D-Y-A-S-H-A-N-T-I, an American teacher and author from the San Francisco Bay Area. And another non-dual teacher with whom I've worked is Leslie Temple Thurston, who can be found at Corelight, that's C-O-R-E-L-I-G-H-T, corelight.org. Also, some folks are drawn to mindfulness practice, uh, as, as taught by some mindfulness teachers such as John Kabat-Zinn or Thich Nhat Hanh. There are many, many practices and teachers, but these are a few examples. The non-dual perspective is extremely important if we are to shift our awareness from the delusions of separation, which is at the core of the paradigm of industrial civilization, and which encourages, even compels us, to view ourselves as separate from the earth, from each other, and even separate from ourselves. For more light in dark times, you may want to check out my ebook reflections from my 2013 book, Collapsing Consciously, Transformative Truths for Turbulent Times. I created this book specifically for the purpose of offering 365 daily reflections on the global crisis that would inspire the reader and offer beacons of light in dark times. So that whenever you like, you can turn to one of these reflections on your computer or on your phone and have a beam of light in your hand. You can find the ebook at Amazon or other places online. In this time of darkness, I do not offer you tidings of comfort and joy, as the famous Christmas carol goes, but rather the possibility of meaning and purpose and connection with yourself, the earth, and the earth community. That, my friend, is the most enduring and consistent light in dark times. Some people like to argue that life has no meaning or purpose and that all of our days are inhabited by absurdity. And yet, other individuals have been able to find meaning in even the worst horrors imaginable. 
One such person was Viktor Frankl, the famous psychiatrist who survived the hell of Auschwitz, even as every member of his family died in that camp or other camps during the Nazi Holocaust. In his wonderful book, Man's Search for Meaning, Frankl writes about his experiences in Auschwitz, and he says, Woe to him who saw no more sense in life, no aim, no purpose, and therefore no point in carrying on. He was soon lost. The typical reply with which such a man rejected all encouraging arguments was, I have nothing to expect from life anymore. What sort of answer can one give to that? What was really needed was a fundamental change in our attitude toward life. We had to learn ourselves, and furthermore, we had to teach the despairing men that it did not really matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. We needed to stop asking about the meaning of life and instead to think of ourselves as those who were being questioned by life daily and hourly. Our answer must consist not in talk and meditation, but in right action and in right conduct. Life ultimately means taking, res- taking the responsibility to find the right answer to its problems and to fulfill the tasks which it constantly sets for individuals. So I would offer you this question. What is life asking from you in this dark time? Is it asking for your service in the world in some way? Is it asking for your love? Is it asking you to open your heart and feel the ocean of grief that is there? Is it asking for your creativity, your passion, your commitment to the journey of moving from an egocentric life to an eco-centric life? With those questions in mind... I'd like to read a poem from the contemporary poet Roshani called The Unbroken, followed by K.D. Lang singing Alleluia. Here's the poem. There's a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy, and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sounds whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside that is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. Here's K.D. Lang with Alleluia.
That was Katie Lang singing Alleluia, and this is the Lifeboat Hour. I'm your host, Carolyn Baker. And at this solstice moment, I'm talking about the light in dark times. A very powerful and large beam of light that I and my team members will be offering beginning January 19th is an online symposium entitled Living with Passion and Purpose in the Face of Humanity's Greatest Challenge. This five-week, ten-session event is going to feature video interviews with many people who have been on the Lifeboat Hour with me, Andrew Harvey, Dar Jamal, Derek Jensen, Jenea Donaldson, uh, Becca Martinson, and many more, several other men and women who will be sharing from their hearts how they're dealing emotionally and spiritually with the global crisis. And in this heart-opening moment, we're going to be talking about who we want to be together in this unprecedented crisis and how we're going to connect with each other and connect with our deep humanity and with the earth. So please go to my website at carolynbaker.net where you can register for this unprecedented event online. You know, this morning uh, as I published the Daily News Digest, um, I was noticing a website uh, that has to do with how we feel about the climate change situation, how we feel about all aspects of the global crisis. And they talked about another website, um, isthishowyoufeel.com, in which climate scientists and others are writing messages on this website about their feelings. And they mentioned that, in fact, this is the new paradigm the, the article states, and this article that I am quoting from right now is, It's the End of the World, How Do You Feel? by Megan Walsh. It's on the Aussie.com website. And in this article, she states, There is a paradigm shift taking place in the field of science with the recognition that even the most stoic minds of the world need a way to process their doomsday findings. All of this fueling a debate that's raged since before Galileo and until recently and landed on one central question. What place does human emotion have in scientific reasoning? But in 2015, there's another layer that's been schlepped into the controversial heap. What do you do when your job is to document the end of the world? And that's uh, where this website, Is This How You Feel, comes in. So we are going to give you in this symposium that's beginning January 19th an opportunity to not only state how you feel, but to listen to these uh, presenters who are all coming from their hearts. And not only are you going to be able to see them by video recording, but after they finish uh, their presentation, you're going to be able to speak with them online, asking them questions, making comments. Uh, and really having an interactive experience with them and with other people who are participating. So I invite you to go to my website today, carolynbaker.net, and register for this groundbreaking, unprecedented event. Now, we've been talking about light in dark times, and, you know, we all want the light, and we should want the light. But the one thing we resist learning from is the darkness itself. Carl Jung once said that one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. In fact, 
while we're resisting the madness of the culture and refusing to buy into the story of industrial civilization, we often fail to see that we cannot escape it. It has left its imprint on us, and we can never erase that. But we can be part of creating a new story, just as we can work to create a new consciousness within ourselves and the world. In order to do that, however, it's absolutely necessary to explore the shadow that we have acquired from a toxic culture. The shadow is the part of us that says, well, that's not me. That whatever that bad thing is that's going on out there, that's not me. In other words, other people are racist, but not me. Other people are dishonest, but not me. Other people are unconscious, but not me. Now, failure to deal with the personal shadow in ourselves and the collective shadow in our culture and our world is precisely the reason why our planet is in the state of hospice that it's in. Yes, many of us have awakened to the horrors of industrial civilization, but we've not yet dealt with its shadow in us. And this is one reason for writing my latest book, Dark Gold, The Human Shadow and the Global Crisis. The words dark gold in the title come from Jung's statement that he believed that 80% of the shadow is actually pure gold. By that he meant that inestimable treasures are available to us if we're willing to work with our own personal human shadow. At the end of each chapter in Dark Gold, I offer very specific practices for working with the shadow. Now, none of this is rocket science or arcane, esoteric magic, but it does require a commitment to a journey. We are now at a point in the collapse of industrial civilization and global climate crisis where we must make the journey of confronting the shadow. It's no longer enough to just read books, watch documentaries, spend hours online, and gather more and more information and scientific data. These activities engage the mind, the mind, yes, but unless the heart is broken open and fully engaged, as I said earlier, we just perpetuate our status of being part of the problem. One of the terrifying realities of the unaddressed shadow is the invariable, inevitable tendency to make everyone and everything other than ourselves. This othering has become epidemic worldwide. And when we other, we make that which we other less than ourselves. For example, you are other so I can hate you, I can kill you, I can shame you, I can exploit, exploit you. Whether it's Donald Trump with his fascist demagoguery or ISIS with its contempt for the so-called infidel or the white policeman who murders unarmed black men in the name of self-defense, othering destroys not only the people who are othered, but the people who are doing the othering as well. When we other, we project onto some person or some group our own shadow characteristics, which we are unwilling to own and explore. Almost none of us escapes the tendency to judge and make the people we judge other than ourselves. But in fact, every one of us carries the programming of racism, religious persecution, sexism, and very subtle forms of othering of which we aren't even conscious. On that note, 
I have one more song for you today, but before I play it, I want to read this short poem by Rafael Jesus Gonzalez. The distance between us is holy ground. The distance between us is holy ground, to be traversed, feet bare, arms raised in joyous dance, so that it can be crossed. And the tracks of our pilgrimage shine in the darkness to light our coming together in a bright and steady light. And now here's the song Glory performed by Common and John Legend from the soundtrack of the 2014 movie Selma. One day when the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be ours. Oh, one day when the war is won, we will be sure. the heavens no man no weapon formed against yes glory is destined everyday women and men become legends sins that go against our skin become blessings the movement is a rhythm to us freedom is like religion to us justice is juxtaposition in us justice for all just ain't specific enough one son died his spirit is revisiting us true and living living in us resistance is us that's why rosa sat on the bus that's why we walk through ferguson with our hands up when it go down we woman and man up they say stay down and we stand up shots we on the ground the camera panned up king pointed to the mountaintop and we ran up one day when the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be ours. Oh, one day, when the war is won, we will be The child, even Jesus got his crown in front of a crowd. They march with the torch, we gon' run with it now. Never look back, we done gone hundreds of miles from dark roads, heroes to become a hero. Facing the league of justice, his power was the people. Enemy is lethal, a king became regal. Saw the face of Jim Crow under a ball ego, the biggest weapon. 
It's to stay peaceful, we sing. Our music is the cuts that we bleed through. Somewhere in the dream we had an epiphany. Now we right the wrongs in history. No one can win a war individually. It take the wisdom of the elders and young people's energy. Welcome to the story we call victory. The coming of the Lord, my eyes have seen the glory. One day, when the glory comes, it will be That was Glory, performed by Common and John Legend from the soundtrack of Selma. And if you haven't seen the movie Selma, you must see it. It is truly one of the bright lights of 2014 and the time in which we find ourselves. I'd like to finish today's show with a poem by W.S. Merwin, which conveys the notion that everything, everything, every dark time, every experience of suffering, Every loss, every injustice, every anguish has within it a potential gift, a potential gift of meaning, wholeness, and healing. It may take a year or years or a lifetime to find that gift, but if we manage to do so, we find ourselves unable to say anything but thanks. And that's the title of this poem by W.S. Merwin, thanks. With the night falling, with the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridge to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water looking out in different directions back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging. After funerals, we are saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. In a culture up to its chin in shame, living in the stench it has chosen, we are saying thank you. Over the telephones, we are saying thank you. In doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars, and the police at the back door, and the beatings on stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks that use us, we are saying thank you. With the crooks in office, with the rich and fashionable unchanged, we go on saying thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, our lost feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forests falling faster than the minutes, the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us like the earth, we are saying thank you faster and faster. With nobody listening, we are saying thank you. We are saying 
thank you, and waving, dark though it is. That was W.S. Merwin with the poem. How it goes Everybody knows Everybody knows that the boat is leaking Everybody knows the captain lied Everybody got this broken feeling